Hi, I'm Alex. Welcome to Reading Poorly. Uh, disclaimer that I've been trying to remember to put in front of every episode. This book, 12 Years a Slave, is not marked explicit because the uh, language in it is not gratuitous, the subject matter is not gratuitous, it is not even necessarily adult themes, but I would recommend listener discretion. It is about slavery. It will make you uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. If you want to listen to me squirm, keep going. If you want to squirm yourself, perhaps, keep going. (laughs) It makes me angry. I would like for it to make you angry as well. Um, Slavery is an injustice. Was an injustice. Is still going on in some places, I'm sure. Uh, But, as it is in this book... I'm going to say it in present tense, and um, yeah, that that's about it. I yeah, <laughs> um, I I never obviously never did quite come up with a good good standard disclaimer for this, so we're just going to go with that. And so we move on. Twelve years a slave, chapter eleven. After a long sleep, sometime in the afternoon, I awoke refreshed, but very sore and stiff. Sally came in and talked with me. Oh, I forgot he had made it back to Ford's place. Uh, Sally came in and talked with me while John cooked me some dinner. Uh, Sally was in great trouble, as well as myself, one of her children being ill, and she feared it could not survive. It... Dinner uh, dinner over, after walking about the quarters for a while, visiting Sally's cabin and looking at the sick child, I strolled into the madam's garden. Though it was a season of the year when the voices of birds are silent and the trees are stripped of their summer glories in more frigid climes, yet the whole... Though it was... Yeah. Okay. Um, yet the whole variety of roses were then blooming there, and the long, luxuriant vines creeping over the frames. The way that sentence was structured threw me off. That was one sentence, the, uh, from though to threw me off. Um, I'm going to try that one again. Though it was a season of the year when the voices of the birds are silent, and the trees are stripped of their summer glories in more frigid climes, yet the whole variety of roses were then blooming there, and the long, luxuriant vines creeping over the frames. That yet got me. It's used in a way that I'm not used to. That's why. It's funny. (laughs) I just said used and used to. And of course, used to is spelled used to. So the the fact that I'm commenting on a word being used multiple ways, and while in fact doing it. The crimson and golden fruit hung half-hidden amidst the younger and older blossoms of the peach, the orange, the plum, and the pomegranate. That was all one. I stopped a peach and then realized there was more to it. For in that region of almost perpetual warmth, the leaves are falling and the buds bursting into bloom the whole year long. I indulged the most grateful feelings um, 
there we go, towards Master and Mistress Ford, and wishing in some manner to repay their kindness, commenced trimming the vines, and afterwards weeding out the grass from among the orange and pomegranate trees. The latter grows eight or ten feet high, and its fruit, though larger, is similar in appearance to the jelly flower. I don't know the jelly flower. It has the luscious flavor of the strawberry. Sure. Uh, oranges, peaches, plums, and most other fruits are indigenous to the rich, warm soil of... Ooh, I forgot this word. Um, Avoyelis, maybe? Avoyelis? But the apple, the most common of them in color and latitudes, is rarely to be seen. If I recall correctly, the apple, despite being as American as apple pie, um, neither apples nor pie are particularly American, particularly the apples, which are Asian. But, you know, um, not that, like, Asia is the antithesis of America, but, like, pie was at least, in the form that we think of it in, um, was at least, you know, birthed in Europe somewhere, I think. Um, but apples just, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, nothing, not even tangential to the colonies and such. Um, okay. Mistress Ford came out presently, saying it was praiseworthy in me, but I was not in a condition to labor, and might rest myself at the quarters until Master should go down to Bayobuth, which would not be that day, and it might not be the next. I said to her, to be sure I felt bad and was stiff, and that my foot pained me, the stubs and thorns having so torn it, but thought such exercise would not hurt me, and that it was a great pleasure to work for so good a mistress. Thereupon she returned to the great house, and for three days I was diligent in the garden, cleaning the walks, weeding the flower beds, and pulling up the rank grass beneath the jessamine, jessamine vines, something like that, which the gentle and generous hand of my protectories had taught to clamor along the walls. This kind of makes me think of that, um, you know, the, the, the claim that people have that some slaves liked working for their masters. Um, because, you know, I mean, right now he's grateful to them and certainly by comparison, he would much prefer to work for the Fords than for Tibets. Um, so I really should look up how to pronounce that, but anyway, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a problematic claim, um. But, uh, the fourth morning, having become re recruited and refreshed, Master Ford ordered me to make ready to accompany him to the bayou. There was but one saddle horse at the opening, all the others with the mules having been sent down to the plantation. I said I could walk, and bidding Sally and John goodbye, left the opening, trotting along the horse's side. That little paradise in the great pine woods was the oasis in the desert, towards which my heart turned lovingly during many years of bondage. I went uh, forth from it now with regret and sorrow, not so overwhelming, however, as if it had been given me to know that I should never return to it again. Um, oh, he didn't know he wasn't going back. Master Ford urged me, to take uh, his place occasionally on the horse, to rest me. But I said no, I was not tired, and it was better for me to walk than him. Or, it was better for me to walk than him. 
He said many kind and cheering things to me on the way, riding slowly in order that I might keep pace with him. The goodness of God was manifest, he declared, in my miraculous escape from the swamp. At... He wasn't escaping from the swamp. He was escaping to the swamp. As Daniel came forth unharmed from the den of lions, and Jonah had been preserved in the whale's belly, even so had I been delivered from evil by the Almighty. He interrog- And you're taking him back to it. He interrogated me in regard to the various fears and emotions I had experienced during the day and night, and if I had felt at any time a desire to pray. I felt forsaken of the whole world, I answered him, and was praying mentally all the while. At such times, said he, the heart of man turns instinctively towards his maker. In prosperity, and when where there is nothing to injure or make him afraid, he remembers him not. Him, capitalized there, and maker was too, but, um, and is ready to defy him, but uh, place him in the midst of dangers, cut him off from human aid, let the grave open up before him, or open before him. Then it is, in this or in the time of his tribulation, that the scoffer and unbelieving man turns to God for help, feeling there is no other hope or refuge or safety save his protecting harm. Um, or, uh, protecting harm. Protecting arm. Interestingly, it did not capitalize his right there, even though I think it probably meant to. So did that ben- benignant man, the, you know, benign man, or just describing him as being benign, but benignant man speak to me of this life and of the hereafter, of the goodness and power of God and of vanity of, and the vanity of earthly things as we journeyed along the solitary road towards Biobuf. When within some five miles of the plantation, we discovered a horseman at a distance galloping towards us. Um, sorry, didn't really inflect that well. When within some five miles of the plantation, we discovered a horseman at a distance galloping toward us. As he came near, I saw that it was Tabitz. Oh, darn it. (laughs) He looked at me a moment, but did not address me, and turning about, rode along side by side with Ford. I trotted silently at their horse's heels, uh, listening to their conversation. Ford informed him of my arrival in the pine woods three days before of the sad plight I was in, and of the difficulties and dangers I had encountered. What about the thing that made him want to go into the swamp? (laughs) Well, exclaimed Tabitz, omitting his usual oaths in the presence of Ford. I never saw such uh, running before. I'll bet him against a hundred dollars he'll beat any N-word in Louisiana. I offered Don... er, John. (laughs) (sighs) The word is John, or the name is John. I said Don, and then I was chiding myself for just saying Don, and I said John. So I said it right. I offered John David Cheney, that's part of why I said Don, the David part, $25 to catch him, dead or alive. But he outran his dogs in a fair race. Them Cheney dogs ain't much after all. Dunwoody's hounds would have had him down before he touched the palmettos. Somehow the dogs got off the track, and we have to give up. We had to give up the hunt. We rode the horses as far as we could, and then kept on foot till the water was three feet deep. The boys said he was drowned. Sure, I allowed. I wanted a shot at him mightily. Ever since I have been riding up and down the bayou, but hadn't much hope of catching him. Thought he was dead. So, 
Sartin? Sartin? I'm not sure what that means. Oh, he's a cuss to run. That N-word is. Give me a second. I'm going to look up this unfamiliar word here. Um, eh, if I can remember how to look up a word. I don't know. <laughs> it's harder to look something up on this than it is on my old one. But. And no, I'm not going to name what devices I'm using for this. Um, in this way, Tabitz ran on, describing his search in the swamp and the wonderful speed with which I had fled before the hounds, and when he had finished, Master Ford responded by saying, I had always been a willing and faithful boy with him, that he was sorry we had such trouble, that, according to Platt's story, he had been inhumanely treated, and that he, Tabitz, was himself at fault. Using hatchets and broad axes upon slaves was shameful and should not be allowed, he remarked. There is no way of dealing with them when first brought into the country. Uh, this is no way of dealing with them when first brought into the country. Um, it will have a pernicious influence and set them all running away. The swamps will be full of them. A little kindness would be far more effectual in restraining them and rendering them obedient than the use of such deadly weapons. Every planter on the bayou should... Uh, frown upon such inhumanity. It is for the interest of all to do so. It is evident enough, Mr. Tabitz, that you and Platt cannot live together. You dislike him and would not hesitate to kill him, and knowing it, he will run from you again through fear of his life. Now, Tabitz, you must sell him or hire him out, at least. Unless you do, I shall take measures to get him out of your possession." In this spirit, Ford addressed him the remainder of the distance. I opened not my mouth. On reaching the plantation, they entered the great house while I repaired to Eliza's cabin. The slaves were astonished to find me there on returning from the field, supposing I was drowned. That night again, they gathered about the cabin to listen to my story of my, uh, the story of my adventure. They took it for granted I would be whipped and that it would be severe. The well-known penalty of running away being 500 lashes. Poor fellow, said Eliza, taking me by the hand. It would have been better for you to have drowned, or it would been, it would have been better for you if you had drowned. There we go. You have a cruel master, and he will kill you yet. I'm afraid. Lawson suggested that it might be um, overseer Chapin would be appointed to inflict the punishment, in which case it would not be severe. Whereupon Mary, Rachel, Bristol, and others hoped it would be Master Ford, and then it would be no whipping at all. They all pitied me and tried to console me, and were sad in view of the castigation that awaited me, except Kentucky John. There were no bounds to his laughter. He filled the cabin with cacinations. Cacinations? I'm guessing it's related to cacophony, but I'm not sure. Holding his sides to prevent an explosion, and the cause of his noisy mirth was the idea of my outstripping the hounds. Somehow, he looked at the subject in economical light. I I knowed they wouldn't catch him when he run across the plantation. Oh, de lore. Didn't Platt pick his feet right up, th though, hey? 
when dem dogs got war he was he wasn't dar ha 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 oh de lor a might a midi mighty Whew. <laughs> and then kentucky john relapsed into another of his boisterous fits man if i had to read a whole book like that like i did with robin hood <laughs> i'm not sure i could manage <laughs> oh that was hard to read <laughs> Early the next morning, Tabitz left the plantation. In the course of the forenoon, while sauntering about the gin house, a tall, good-looking man came to me and inquired if I was Tabitz's boy, that youthful appellation being applied indiscriminately to slaves, even though they uh, may have passed the number of three score years and ten. Um, oh, yep, remember I mentioned the boy thing? Uh, well, I don't remember when. It was a episode or two ago. I took off my hat and answered that I was. Um, how would you like to work for me? He inquired. Oh, I would like to very much, <laughs> assuming you're not just as bad. And I inspired with a sudden hope of getting away from Tabitz. Oh, said I, inspired. Uh, you worked under Mr. Er, you worked under Myers at Peter Tanner's, didn't you? didn't you? I replied I had, adding some complimentary remarks that Myers had made concerning me. Well, boy, said he, I told you I'd be able to read this. <laughs> um, yeah, Northup even mentioned it. The uh, That youthful appellation being uh, applied indiscriminately to slaves, even though they may have passed, and even if they're 70 years old, is what he said. Um, uh, it's, I don't know. Like, I can read it because, I, I think, because even though I know the context it's being set in, I use it in other contexts all the time. And I don't know if that's a good excuse. <laughs> um, I do know that I am more comfortable reading it because I'm not the one saying it. Does that make sense? Like, it is not my words, and I am not directing it at a person. Um, but that doesn't help with the other word. But the other word does not have a context in which it is appropriate for me to say it. And, I mean, arguably, it's never appropriate for anyone to say it. it's It's not my place. I, I'm not going to weigh in on that. <laughs> I know that I shouldn't say it. I know I don't like it when other people say it, even if it's people who um, feel and perhaps are entitled to say it um, for, you know, taking back ownership or taking ownership and empowerment and that kind of stuff. If they say it around me, it will make me uncomfortable. And if they say it enough and I am, you know, and if it's a friend or something, I will likely say something about it. Not like, you know, you know, in a, Hey, it just makes me uncomfortable kind of way. Not a, you know, you better stop saying that, you know, I'm trying not to be, um, what's the word argumentative, but that's not what I'm thinking of. Um, belligerent, I guess about it. But, for whatever reason, even though, like I said, even though I know that boy is intended 
basically as badly. <laughs> I I can I can say it. I don't know. And I'm going to continue to. It's just one of those weird, complicated things. So, and yeah, it's still going to make me uncomfortable to say it. It's not going to create a massive pit in my stomach like the other one did the one or two times I've said it so far. Well, boy, said he, I've hired you of your master to work f for me in the, quote, big cane break, whatever that is, 30 miles from here down on Red River. Okay, I haven't noticed, I don't remember noticing this before, but this edition does not have nested quotes, and it's bothering me. The big cane break was in quotes, but it was not in single quotes. <laughs> it was in double quotes that were in double quotes, and when you're switching between people quoting other people, you're supposed to swap between them. Hopefully that made sense. Look up nested quotes. This man was Mr. Eldret. Eldre, maybe? Who lived below Fords on the same side of the bayou. I accompanied him to his plantation and in the morning started with his slave Sam and a wagon load of provisioners down by four mules for the big cane. Um, Eldret and Myers having preceded us on horseback. This Sam was a native of Charleston, where he had a mother, brother, and sisters. He allowed, quote, a common word among both black and white, that Tibeats was a mean man, and hoped, as I most earnestly did also, that his master would buy me. Uh, we proceeded down the south shore of the bayou, crossing it at Carey's, plantation from thence to huff power i almost said hufflepuff uh huff power passing which uh we came upon the bayou uh, rouge road um which runs towards red river bayou rouge goes to red river that's kind of funny um if you are aware of the fact that rouge means red in french of course because Louisiana. After passing through Bayou Rouge Swamp, and just at sunset, turning from the highway, we s struck off into the Big Cane Break. We followed an unbeaten track scarcely wide enough to admit the wagon. The cane, such as are used for fishing rods, were as thick as they c uh, were as thick as they could stand. A person could not be seen through uh, through them the distance of a rod. The, path, the paths of wild beasts run through them in various directions. The bear and the American tiger, there's an American tiger, abounding in these breaks, and wherever there is a bastion of stagnant water, it is full of alligators. Um... I think cane, I think sugar cane, but I guess not all cane m must have sugar or, you know, must be sweet. Um, we kept on our lonely course through the big cane. It, it It's quoting it every time. The big cane several miles when we entered a clearing known as Sutton's Field. Also in quotes. Many years before, a man by the name of Sutton had penetrated the wilderness of cane to this solitary place. Tradition has it that he fled thither, a fugitive, not from service, but from justice. Here he lived alone, 
uh, recluse and hermit of the swamp, with his own hands planting the seed and gathering the harvest. One day a band of Indians stole upon his solitude, and after a bloody battle, overpowered and massacred him. <sighs> More uh, potentially problematic stuff. Um, for miles, the country, uh, for miles, the country round in the slaves' quarters and on piazzas of great houses, quote, quote, great houses, where white, where white children listen to superstitious tales, the story goes that that spot in the heart of the big cane is a haunted place. For more than a quarter of a century, human voices had rarely, if ever, disturbed the silence of the clearing. Rank and noxious weeds have overspread the once cultivated field. Serpents sunned themselves on the doorway of the crumbling cabin. It was indeed a dreary picture of desolation. Passing Sutton's field, we followed a new cut road two miles farther, which brought us to its termination. We had now reached the wild lands of Mr. Eldred. Maybe it's Eldre? I don't know. I I'm probably still going to say Eldred. Um, where he contemplated clearing up an extensive plantation. We went to work next morning with our cane knives and cleared a sufficient space to allow the erection of two cabins, one for Myers and Eldret, the other for Sam, myself, and the slaves that were to join us. We were now in the midst of trees of enormous growth, whose widespreading branches almost shut out the light of the sun while the space between the trunks was an impervious mass of cane, with here and there an occasional palmetto. The bay, and s the bay and the sycamore, the oak and the cypress, each a growth unparalleled in uh, those fertile lowlands bordering the Red River. From every tree, moreover, hang long, large masses of moss presented to the eye unaccustomed yet presenting to the eye unaccustomed to them a striking and singular appearance. This moss in large quantities is sent north, and they're, and they're used for manufacturing purposes. I wonder what specifically. That's kind of interesting. We cut down oaks, split them into rails, and with, the, and with these erected temporary cabins. We covered the roofs with the broad palmetto leaf, an excellent substitute for shingles, as long as they last. The greatest annoyance I met with here were small flies, gnats, and mosquitoes. They swarmed the air. They penetrated the porches um, of the ear, the nose, the eyes, the mouth. They sucked themselves beneath the skin. It was impossible to brush or beat them off. It seemed indeed as if they would devour us, carry us away piecemeal in their small, tormenting mouths. <laughs> A lonelier spot, or one more disagreeable, than the center of the big cane brick. It would be difficult to conceive, yet to... Oh, yeah. Um, a lonelier spot, or one more disagreeable, than the center of the big cane brick. It would be difficult to... Uh, it would be difficult to conceive. Yet to me, it was a paradise, in comparison with any other place in the company of Master Tweets. I laughed hard, and oft-times was weary and fatigued, yet I could lie down at night in peace and arise in the morning without fear. In the course of a fortnight, four black girls came down from Eldred's plantation. Charlotte, Fanny, Crescia, Cressa, Crescia, Crescia, something like that, and Nellie. 
no Oxford comma. They were all large and stout. Axes were put into their hands, and they were sent out with Sam and myself to cut trees. They were excellent choppers, the largest oak or sycamore standing but a brief season before their heavy and well-directed blows. At piling logs, they were equal to any man. Uh... There are lumber women as well as lumber men in the forests of the south. In fact, in the region of Bayou Boeuf, they perform their share of all the labor required on the plantation. They plow, drag, uh, drive team, clear wildlands, work on the highway, and so forth. Some planters, owning uh, large cotton and sugar plantations, have none other than the labor of slave women. Uh, such a one is Jim Burns, who lives on the north shore of the bayou, opposite the plantation of John Fogerman. On our arrival in the break, Eldrit promised me if I worked well, I might go up to visit my friends at Ford's in four weeks. <laughs> on Saturday night of the fifth week, I reminded him of this promise when he told me I had done so well that I might go. I had set my heart upon it, and Eldred's announcement thrilled me with pleasure. I was to return in time to commence the labors of the day on Tuesday morning. <laughs> I'm getting, I'm leaving just in time to work more. Yay. See, that's, that's slavery for you. While indulging the pleasant anticipation of so soon meeting my old friends again, suddenly the hateful form of Tabeats appeared among us. Oh. He inquired how Myers and Platt got along together and was told very well and that Platt was going up to Ford's plantation in the morning on a visit. Pope, Pope it's either Popo or Poo-Poo or something. It's P-O-H. Popo sneered to beats. It isn't worthwhile. The N-word will get unsteady. He can't go. Unsteady, whatever that means. But Eldred insisted I had worked faithfully, that he had given me his promise, and that under these circumstances I ought not to be disappointed. They then, in being, they then, it being about dark, entered one cabin and I the other. I could not give up the idea of going. It was a sore disappointment. Before morning, I resolved, if Eldred made no objection, to leave all, or to leave at all hazards. At daylight, I was at his door my blanket with my blanket rolled up into a bundle and hanging on a stick over my shoulder waiting for a pass to came out presently in one of his disagreeable moods washed his face and going to a stump nearby sat down upon it apparently busily thinking with himself after standing there a long time impelled by a sudden impulse of impatience i started off are you going without a pass he cried out to me yes master i thought i would I answered. Um, how do you think you'll get there? Demanded he. Don't know, was all the reply I made to him. You'd be taken and sent to jail where you ought to be, uh, before you got halfway there, he added, passing into the cabin as he said it. He came out soon with the pass in his hand and calling me, um, calling me a damned N-word that deserved a hundred lashes, threw it to the ground. I picked it up and hurried right away speedily. A slave caught off his master's plantation without a pass may be seized and whipped by any white man whom he meets. Uh, the one I now receive received was dated and reads and read as follows. Platt has permission to go to Forest Plantation on Bayou Boeuf and return by Tuesday morning. John M. Tabeats. Um, what Tuesday? <laughs>
and if he's leaving in time to get there Tuesday, yeah, maybe a week, but no, that's probably not what he means. This is the usual form. On the way, a great many demanded it, read it, and passed on. Those having the air and appearance of gentlemen whose dress indicated the possession of wealth frequently took no notice of me, whatever. But a shabby fellow, an unmistakable loafer, never failed to to hail me and to scrutinize and examine me in the most thorough manner. It's funny because the past, they probably assume that the slaves can't read or write and make their own counterfeit ones, but Solomon would be able to make one, I believe. Catching runaways um, is sometimes a money-making business. If, after advertising, no owner appears, they may be sold to the highest bidder. A certain and certain fees are allowed to the finder for his services at all events, even if reclaimed. A mean white, therefore, quote, a mean white, therefore, a name applied to the species loafer, considers it a godsend to meet an unknown Negro without a pass. Um, so in that case, mean is talking about um, not like an angry disposition, but a lowly person, if you will. Or even someone who is lowly. It's a, a species loafer. So um, the implication there being that they are lowly, not necessarily by choice, but by consequence of their choices. Obvious consequences <laughs> of their choices. Something like that. Um, there are no inns along the highways in that portion of the state where I sojourned. I was wholly destitute of money, neither did I carry any provisions on my journey from the big cane to Biobuf. Nevertheless, with his pass in hand, a slave need never suffer from hunger or thirst. It is only necessary to present it to the master or overseer of a plantation and state his wants when he will be sent round to the kitchen and provided with food or shelter, as the case may require. Well, that's nice. Weird, but nice. I mean, I guess you can't just take him because he belongs to someone else, quote-unquote. You know, I'm talking the rules of slavery here. Um, so it would be considered theft for someone to, you know, take him as their slave. So, um, but I'm kind of surprised that they give him anything. But I, perhaps through neglect, you know, they could also damage someone's property, I guess. The traveler stops at any house and calls for a meal with as much freedom as if it was a public tavern. It is the general custom of the country. Uh, whatever their faults may be, it is certain the inhabitants along Red River and around the bayous in the interior of Louisiana are not wanting in hospitality. Southern hospitality. I arrived at Ford's plantation towards the close of the afternoon, passing, I thought, he said he didn't make it back, but I probably just misread the sentence. Um, I arrived at Fort's plantation towards the close of the afternoon, passing uh, the evening in Eliza's cabin with Lawson, Rachel, and others of my acquaintance. Uh, when we left Washington, Eliza's form was round and plumped. Plump. She stood erect and, and in her silks and jewels presented a picture of graceful strength and elegance. Now she was but a thin shadow of her former self. Her face had become ghastly haggard, and the once straight and active form was bowed, do bowed down 
as if bearing the weight of a hundred years. Crouching on her cabin floor and clad in the coarse garments of a slave, old Eliza Berry would not have recognized the mother of his child. Um, what? Oh, old Elisha Berry would not have recognized the mother of his child. Okay. I never saw her afterwards. Okay. (laughs) Um, he keeps saying these like, and this never happened again or whatever. And it's like, Whoa, just yeah. Throw the spoiler right at me. Um, but I guess it's better than just never mentioning her again because you know, now we know, (laughs) um, I would not remember that she just casually had not been mentioned again. So, um, I never saw her afterwards having become useless in the cotton field. She was bartered for a trifle to some man residing in the vicinity of Peter Compton's grief had nod remorselessly at her heart until her strength was gone. And for that, her last master, it is said, lashed her lashed and abused her most unmercifully, but he could not whip back the departed vigor of her youth nor straighten up that bended body to its full height, such as it was when her children were around her and the light of freedom was shining on her path. Yep. Should have purchased the whole family as a set or, you know, not done slavery, but, um, I learned, you know what I mean, right? (laughs) No, they shouldn't have purchased her at all or her family at all, but she, promised when they sold her kids separately from her that she was not going to be a good slave without her kids. She, she totally predicted that. I mean, maybe she intentionally did it too. I don't know, but I am quite sure that she was legitimately, um, uh, depressed. I learned learned the particulars relative to her departure from this world from some of Compton's slaves who had come over Red River to the bayou to assist young Madam Tanner during the, quote, busy season. She, She became at length, they said, utterly helpless for several weeks lying on the ground floor in a dilapidated cabin, dependent upon the mercy of her fellow thralls for an occasional drop of water and a morsel of food. Her master did not, quote, knock her on the head, as it is sometimes done to put out a suffering, to put a suffering animal out of misery, but left her unprovided for and unprotected to linger through a life of pain and wretchedness to its its natural close. When the hands returned from the field one day, or one night, they found her dead, exclamation point. They found her dead, something like that. During the day, the angel of the Lord, who moveth invisibly over all the earth, gathering in his harvest of departing souls, had silently entered the cabin of the dying woman and taken her from thence. She was free at last. It italicizes free. So, Next day, rolling up my blanket, I... um, I think what's happening here, timeline-wise, is that... He goes to Ford's, he sees Eliza being miserable. And so what's happening now is like the, the story he just gave of her death is happening months in the future. And he just later found out about it. I think that's what, what's happening next day, rolling up my blanket. I started on my return to the big cane after traveling five miles, um, at a place called Huff power, 
again. Um, that time, instead of Hufflepuff, because it was on separate lines, I thought Huff Post, Huffington Post, um, at a place called Huff Power. The ever-present Tibeats met me <laughs> in the road. He inquired why I was going back so soon, and when informed I was anxious to return by the time I was directed, he said I need to go no farther than the next plantation, as he said uh, that day or as he had that day, sold me to Edwin Epps. We walked down into the yard where we met the latter gentleman who, who examined me and asked me for the, or asked me the usual question questions propounded by purchasers. Having been duly delivered over, I was ordered to the quarters and at the same time directed myself to make a hoe and or to make at the same time, directed to make a hoe and axe handle for myself. I read them myself too soon. I was now no longer the property of Tabeats, his dog, his brute, dreading his wrath and cruelty day and night, and whoever and whatever my new master might prove to be, I could not certainly regret the change. It's probably why he went to visit the other guy, I guess. Uh, to tell him I'm about to sell him. <laughs> So it was good news when the sale was announced, and with a sigh of relief I sat down for the first time in my new abode. Tabeats soon after disappeared from that section of the country. Once afterwards, and only once, I caught a glimpse of him. It was many miles from Bayobuf. He was seated in the doorway of a low groggery. <laughs> Grog being, I guess, cheap alcohol? <laughs> Something like that. Um, it was a low groggery, so... I, a, a deadbeat tavern. I was passing in a drove of slaves through St. Mary's Parish. And that's it. If you like what I do, feel free to uh, rate and review on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. You can also reach out um, to mention that I'm not available on your favorite platform or for constructive criticism or just to say hi or to suggest future books to read um, either on Twitter at reading poorly or uh, email reading comma poorly at gmail.com spell it out no punctuation r-e-a-d-i-n-g-c-o-m-m-a-p-o-o-r-l-y at gmail.com um, trying to think of the other things, that might be it. I feel like I'm forgetting something, but yeah, well, I'm just going to move on, <laughs> even if I am forgetting something. So thank you for listening this long to me reading poorly. <laughs>